1: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Breitbart editor-in-chief Alex Marlowe argues that the mainstream media has destroyed its credibility. His book is called Breaking the News, exposing the establishment media's hidden deals and secret corruption. He's interviewed by Reason Magazine editor-at-large Matt Welch. So what's the instrumental purpose of this book? What do you hope to accomplish? Who do you hope to reach?
0: Uh, I would like to hope that the book will accomplish a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, I know realistically it's going to be read by more conservatives than people who are independent or or liberal. And I hope those people get two things out of it. I, I hope they, first of all, get arguments that they can use in debates that may or may not be having around the country. But I'm optimistic that uh, in the future, we will return to an era where we can kind of have a... Uh, a, a more a more robust public discourse and dialogue, and the second thing, which is not uh, un- unessential, is I l- hope it's entertaining. I hope people get a, a or enjoy learning some of the things that I've been thinking about and researching over the last couple of years. So you uh, posit
1: that the news is broken, and I will sort of semi-summarize the, in the three main ways that you do. One is from within the newsroom by agenda-driven journalists who sometimes don't really admit they're agenda-driven. Uh, one's from the boardroom through kind of corporate corruptions and, uh, and uh, deals, uh, and then also from without by people like you, like Breitbart, uh, who are kind of gleefully uh, uh, throwing rocks at the structures. Talk about that last bit uh, for a little bit, for those who might not be fully aware of what Breitbart does and, uh, and just sort of the role of the independent uh, right of center uh, media ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and I would say probably on balance, the book probably covers more of the former, uh, slightly more than the latter, but it is fun to go through our history at Breitbart, because I do think we've largely been misconstrued. And and I don't think that uh, we've been given a fair shake in the public. And I lay that out and it's sort of peppered in throughout the book. Uh, The book isn't mostly memoir, but there's a little memoir in it because I was the first employee of Breitbart. Uh, But I think a lot of the knocks on us have been dishonest. And it's been one of these things where people have heard some of them uh, so often, for example, like we're Ah, uh, alt right. Well, alt right is associated with anti-Semitism. Well, we happen to be owned by Jews. We have Orthodox Jews on staff. Uh, our former editor-in-chief, who's still our senior editor, is an Orthodox Jew, and the company was founded in Israel and is pretty much 100% pro-Israel. Or the idea for the company uh, was started in Israel. So it is one one of those things where it's such an absurd thing, yet it's repeated over and over and over again, and uh, pointing that out, I think, is is worthwhile. But To the essence of your question, I do think that so long as there's free speech in America, so long as there is a First Amendment and it's not entirely controlled by uh, Silicon Valley, then there are going to be dissident voices. There's going to be voices that are able to penetrate into the national dialogue without having the institutional backing of a corporation. Uh, I'm just. at the level of corporate media that we have right now. is just too much. Uh, And uh, I would be shocked if anyone really disagreed with that thesis if they thought about it for long enough. Uh, But I do think with the rise of of podcasting and with Substack and with so many uh, alternative media sources that have thrived over the last decade, it's left an indelible mark on the establishment media's credibility. And I think it's pretty much undeniable.
1: Uh, so is there a tension there between like the, the, the way that the news is broken in a good way? I mean, that sounds like that's great. It's a, a, they've broken the corporate hold. That's undeniably good. Uh, but in the way that it's also bad, because this is largely a critique too. Is there, is there a natural tension between the brokenness of the news and what we are to think about it?
0: Yeah, it is a tragic story in a way because we would all love for our media to be heroes. I look at the way they're portrayed in popular culture. And I know popular culture is largely controlled by people of the same political worldview as the people who control our our news media, but we want to portray people as heroes. We want to portray people as really uh, throwing their bodies on the gears and stopping uh, machinations of, of, of ill will within our society. And yet that really is not what it is right now. Right now, the establishment media is about Twitter likes and it's about conformity to people in their peer group. And it's about serving gigantic corporations, which are multinational, they have vested interests abroad. They're not that focused on uh, American exceptionalism or really what it means to be American at all. And I I do find this somewhat heartbreaking. So, of course, breaking – the fact that the news has been broken by some of these upstarts that I champion, and I know you're a part of this at your publication – uh, it, it, it is a good thing in a way that this is possible in America. Uh, but I think by and large, it would be great if we could look at corporate media and trust them, at least to a certain degree. I think trust in those, those corporate outlets has really eroded so much in recent years. And I think it's, uh, it's not a great thing that's happened.
1: Uh, you write in your first chapter, uh, you kind of uh, do a victory lap over the way that uh, you first, I think, um, uh, kind of uh, co-opted and turned around a Hillary Clinton phrase, a also kind of a journalistic establishment phrase that we heard a lot of in November of 2016, which is fake news. Uh, and then a little while later, uh, the president of the United States started using it to uh, talk about that timeline a little bit.
0: Yeah, this is straight out of the Breitbart playbook. And I do consider this one of my babies. And I'm so happy you uh, asked about it because I never thought I would get any public credit for it. So, but I'm going to take a little bit now uh, with my colleagues at Breitbart. Um, But when Hillary started to use the term fake news, which we had seen floating around in left-wing kind of uh, Obama circles in media, pro-Obama circles, uh, we were starting to see this concept uh, percolate And I thought, oh, I know what they're going to do here. I know exactly what's going to happen. This is going to be something that is used to brand people the way words are often used to brand people, like, you know, the aforementioned alt-right, things that are used to white nationalists, things that uh, people don't even necessarily know who are the leaders of these movements and what these words mean or really how powerful they are. But if you brand someone, if you tarnish someone with that, then it's very hard to uh, wash that off of you. And I knew Hillary Clinton was going to do that specifically with Breitbart because not that Breitbart had put out fake news, but because Breitbart was effective. So we've always been the tip of the spear, at least the way I felt over the last decade or so, in terms of the left test driving their attacks on conservative media outlets, because we're the biggest of the upstart conservative media outlets, and probably only Fox is is bigger. And they're, again, a, a corporate outlet. So it's a slightly different model. Um, So when I saw Hillary doing this and she had a speech, it was supposed to be a celebration for Harry Reid. I forget if it was a retirement, I think it was a retirement celebration for Harry Reid. And she used the term over and over again. I thought, oh, this is gonna break through. I see what she's doing. And I had thought, I didn't know for sure, but I thought maybe she was thinking about Breitbart. So I did something that we'd done a number of times in the past, which I said, well, we're just going to repurpose this. And we're going to take the branding fake news, and we're going to put it on every false story that comes out of the establishment, whether it's CNN, whether it's the New York Times. Uh, we're just going to start doing fake news, fake news, fake news, and co-opt the expression." Uh, Then Donald Trump, he got into it with Jim Acosta during a press conference about a month or two later. And just right off the cuff, he just says, you're fake news to Jim Acosta. And, you know, the pro-Trump world was just elated. They thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. And then it became Trump's phrase and he ran with it. Uh, But it really was, I do believe it began with Breitbart, the co-opting of the term to something that benefits the right as opposed to something that was going to be used to attack us.
1: You just complained that people were using it to tarnish, you know, groups of people. Is that not what you are doing right here, sir, with the media? But if you're calling people the fake news media, are you not tarnishing them uh, in a kind of collective way?
0: Sure. I think that there's there's two components to that. It's a good question. Uh, The the first part is they started it, which is that they are started trying to brand us as fake news and they go way out of their way to try to diminish Uh, Breitbart's influence and the conservative media's influence in general. And they're constantly, if we're getting any attention, it's always negative. Uh, There's never anything positive. Uh, They're in a battle against us. Uh, and so what, what what we do is we'll use the term, but they have to earn it. We're not calling some liberal opinion fake news because we don't agree with the opinion. We wait until there's an actual falsehood. Uh, whereas when the term was being used by Hillary Clinton, he was using these broad strokes about these groups of people putting out fake news. She wouldn't actually cite the falsehoods that were being put out. Uh, so I do think that that's not an equivalent thing. And it, it, first of all, I think the, the retaliatory nature of it uh, is important. We're not looking to pick fights with people. Uh, we are looking to react to people who we think are are coming after us or coming after our readers. And I do think that the term fake news is, if you, if you brought up a Breitbart story right now that we got totally wrong, we totally airballed, and you said that's fake news, I'd say, sure, it's fake news. Uh, we try our best not to do that, but uh, technically it's true.
1: You talk about uh, focus mostly on three media companies, New York Times, Bloomberg, uh, NBC Universal. Um, Talk a little bit uh, about the New York Times and your uh, decoder ring for people who are going to read it.
0: Sure. I think that the New York Times, uh, they have a list of priorities uh, that they use uh, in order to kind of when they do their curation and all news has a curation element of it. And a lot of people act like it's just so obvious what should be the front page story and who are the heroes and who are the villains It's not true. And there are patterns that I lay out and there's probably about 15 or so rules in all. But I I notice how heroes to the New York Times, for example, they will get these glamorous photos on the front page and villains will either get a dark photo or they'll get no photo. Uh, If they're writing on a story that fits a narrative, like for example, uh, Trump did something bad or the coronavirus is going to ravage all of society and they feel like they can back it up, then they will put that on the front page and they will put the, the, the argument or the piece of information that fits that narrative at the very top of the article. But when it comes out, for example, one example I cite in the book is how uh, so many outlets thought that when Florida was going to reopen Disney World in last summer, uh, that when they were going to do that, it was going to create all the super spreader events. All these outlets went really big and bold and uh, super spreader events. DeSantis is reckless. This is all horrible. Everyone's going to die from this. And then when it turned out weeks later, that there was no evidence there were any super spreader events from Disney World reopening uh, those stories did not make the front page and then Eventually, they start to trickle out just barely months later, but then they were more buried. They aren't front page stories. Uh, They're stories that are buried within the paper. And you start seeing these patterns. And I, I think it's really fun just to point out, hey, look, I see what they're doing here. There's actually information that contradicts their point, but it's in paragraph 17. So they might include it. They just won't put it at the top. And, uh, it, it is, I do try to make it, I think a little more clear than I, I'm being now in the book, uh, but it's fun. And you can take a picture of it with your phone. And then when you're reading the New York times, you can match up. It's like a game almost to see what they're doing.
1: You write about in the book, and I believe Breitbart published a couple of pieces about, um, the tweets that some staffers made before they joined the times. In some cases, uh, when they were in college, uh, controversial tasteless, um, uh, what's the newsworthiness? What's the significance of that? Why should we be talking about the collegiate tweets of current uh, New York Times staffers?
0: Well, are, were they were they all collegiate tweets? What are the examples? A couple, in the couple
1: of them uh, were uh, Tom Wright Persanti uh, and yeah. Gina Shrull. Sorry, Gina, for mispronouncing your name. I believe uh, the tweets, that you, which I don't have up in front of me, but they were not. Sure. They were not bueno. Yeah. Uh, it, but like, why, why is this sure. a... Why is this worthy of talking about in the context of the modern day New York Times?
0: So it's not about the individuals in most cases, though, in some cases, it's so extreme and they rise to such a high level. Like the Sarah Jong tweets um, are just so over the top and they've not been retracted. And And she she did those
1: uh, at least some of those while uh, staffer. Uh, Yeah, or
0: at least right before. I mean, it was a so so yeah, but with Tom Wright Persanti in particular, it's purely a a hypocrisy angle. And I I point out that Breitbart has been fending off claims that we're anti-Semitic despite having Orthodox Jews. Uh, who uh, edit the site, and Jews who own the company, and a, just an admitted bias towards Israel 100% of the time. Uh, and it's been enabled, I believe, by the establishment press, who does employ people who have had these thoughts in the past and have not had to address them. So a uh, Tom Wright Persanti wasn't fired. I don't think he should have been fired. I would not have called for his firing. I did not call for his firing, nor did anyone at Breitbart, I don't think. But I think to point out that they pose as an authority on anti-Semitism when they employ people like that, and they're the ones who are calling balls and strikes. And I, I'm, the, the, the case that it makes on a broader level is that they portray themselves as the neutral umpires of what's going on in America and, and really international life. And it's just not true. They're not neutral at all.
1: Are are you not in the in those circumstances contributing to the kind of outrage archaeology, right? Where people dig through the social media uh, dumpster uh, of of people in the past? Uh, is that a good place for us to go to, regardless of the hypocrisy angle? Should I be looking at seeing what kind of terrible things you wrote in high school to like bring down Breitbart Bart once and for all?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a tough decision in the newsroom because there's I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because the left is going to engage in this behavior regardless. Uh, If we extend the courtesy to them that everything should be off limits, which, by the way, when the, the lady from Axios got fired from her job at Vogue, for a tweet she did when she was 17, Alexi McCammon, uh, that was outrageous. And I think that I said so publicly on my national radio show, that she should not have uh, left that job. And she shouldn't have um, uh, put out a uh, kind of a weak-kneed statement about it as well. She should have said, I I was 17 years old, everyone should take a hike. Um, But I do think that the choices, there's only two choices. There's either let the left use this tactic to try to destroy people who are in my audience or even on my staff, and have no, no pushback at all, uh, or to do it in a way where we highlight that they're not authoritative on this. They have no business. Uh, they're in glass houses and should not be casting stones. But do it in a way where we're not calling on them to get fired. We're just pointing out that they're, they, they're massive hypocrites. So it's a tough call, uh, and we take it case by case. And there's many cases where we've had things that have come up, Uh, that have come across my desk that I I haven't run with because I do think it's too much of a cheap shot. But sometimes it does make a point so perfectly, it, it seems like the right decision.
1: Who is Laureen Powell Jobs? What is the Emerson Collective? And why should consumers of media be aware of both?
0: Yeah, this is an amazing story. Thanks for asking about it. Uh, Lorene Powell Jobs is one of the most fascinating characters in Breaking the News. And it is someone I knew almost nothing about, uh, which is is relevant to this. Uh, She's the widow of Steve Jobs, who is the genius behind Apple and also Pixar, where sometimes people forget that when he was on hiatus from Apple. Uh, he stayed busy inventing Pixar. So when he passed away in his 50s, she inherited tons of money, uh, unspeakable amounts of money, 15 million, 10 million, something like that. Uh, her net worth now is uh, perhaps 20, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a uh, 20 uh, uh, billion dollars. So she's one of the wealthiest women on the planet. And uh, if you, there's very limited things that have been written about her or, and she doesn't do a ton of public appearances. Um, but what you would learn about her is that she is a, woman in tech, and she is a philanthropist. But if you look into what she does, she's not really in tech. She's really an heiress who inherited a bunch of money from tech. And I I started to look into what she funds. And she's in charge of this thing called the Emerson Collective, which is really run as her personal trust. And the Emerson Collective is this hybrid philanthropic and investing arm. And uh, if that sounds confusing, I, I still don't get it, and I've been you know, staring at this stuff for months. Uh, it, it's, and I think that is 100% on purpose, and it's to hide exactly what she's up to. And the Emerson Collective is a lot of people, Obama alumni, on their board, and they fund almost exclusively Democrat causes and they own these media outlets. And I noticed this thing where they own all different types of media outlets from the ultra credible to the completely uh, inarguably not credible. So they are the biggest, uh, they're the owners of the Atlantic. Glossy, over hundred years old, founded by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, it's, a, it, it's got a lot of pull in certain circles. Not my favorite personally, but it's got some pull. Uh, Axios, very popular in Washington. Uh, and, and they, they uh, are the biggest shareholders of that. But also the more activist left, ProPublica, for example, um, the the Mother Jones, they get good scoops, but clearly trying to get victories for, for the for the left. Then things like now this, now this is millennial focus, viral videos, uh, and something that is designed to weaponize content on behalf of Democrats against conservatives. But then there is something called Acronym. And Acronym is really a nefarious group and a group that really should, even if you're on the left, I, I, you should look into this because this is a group that owns something called the Courier Newsroom, which is, to make a long story short, what they do is they launder fake news, Democrat talking points, actual uh, Democrat propaganda into local news outlets. And Lorraine Powell Jobs funds all this. And no one had put this together. And she also funds top Democrat candidates. She's made hundreds of donations to Democrats, including to Kamala Harris, who is seen as a close personal friend and ally of hers. Uh, The Atlantic barely stopped short of endorsing Harris in the 2020 primary. And I use some of the quotes that the Atlantic had when they were writing about Harris. And they're just, I mean, if you're on the right, you're you're, going to be physically, uh, you're going to be uncomfortable. They're so over the top with the praise and she's got this whole web, and she's the most important person at it, networked with the Democrat establishment, networked with the media establishment, networked with the activist media, and she uses all this imagery where she's appropriating Malcolm X and Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, in her office. It's just an amazing character that is unspeakably powerful and almost entirely anonymous to the American public, and until this book, I don't think anyone knew her name.
1: You said uh, that uh, The Atlantic is not your cup of tea in the Book you actually write as a news outlet. The Atlantic is abominable, horrible journalists, (laughs) often horrible people. My God, what did they do to your Cheerios?
0: No, they, uh, that that was a, I (laughs) I did use some flair there. I used some color. I was not happy with the Atlantic while I was writing this. No, but I went through a couple stories where they were, you know, arguing really. Um, against, I think it was, ultrasounds because they lead to fewer abortions, which is, again, even if you are pro-choice, I don't know why you want more abortions. This is just which I find that position the pro-choice, I, I can understand the, the wanting more abortions, though, is just repulsive to me. Uh, and they argue for a, a Chinese model in the government so often, which is another theme of the book, is the Chinese influence over American media. Uh, but they want a, a more model. They have a piece arguing for more chi- a Chinese model of censorship, which I know is a, a top libertarian, Matt. I mean, you have to see why I would be pretty appalled by that coming from a major American publication. We should be more like China when it comes to censorship.
1: Talk about that more on uh, follow up, maybe using Bloomberg as an example. Um, uh, how is corporate media in the United States um, bowing to the, uh, the dictates of uh, Chinese censors?
0: Yeah, I think this is something that is seen throughout a lot of the elements of the book. And I and I paint a broad picture of how certain outlets, virtually every major outlet, does do major business in China at this point. And knowing how ruthless China is to people who do not um, uh who, who stand athwart China's efforts to keep this pristine image of itself and its central party. Uh, You know, there's going to be a certain level of obsequiousness, compliance in, uh, I would say, compromising of American values and principles in order to do business in China. Like take NBC, for example, which is part of NBC Comcast Universal. Uh, uh, ABC News is actually part of, you know, Disney. It's part of ABC Disney. Uh, And it goes to we saw some of these major deals that have taken place that have linked the Chinese market with American news industry. Now, I'm not saying it's direct link. I'm not saying they'll never, ever report on China. uh, But needless to say, if the newsroom starts stepping out of line, there's massive incentive from corporate headquarters to say, hey, guys, if you keep doing this, you're going to hurt us with the biggest market in the world other than America, which is China. And we're selling movies there. We got theme parks there. We got a lot of business we're doing there. And you're going to you guys going to ruin that for us. And that's a major disincentive to report accurately on China. And in Bloomberg's case, I think it is is proven out to be an incentive to just engage in absurd behavior. And I lay it out, I think, pretty comprehensively in the book. But I documented Bloomberg in Bloomberg LP, which For people who are unfamiliar with Bloomberg, because not everyone gets their news from from Bloomberg, they're the most powerful financial news outlet in the world. Uh, They have, I believe, more journalists in the AP and the New York Times. I'm sorry, uh, the New York Times, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal combined. They have more journalists. And their revenue per year is at least double what Fox and CNN's is combined. So they're a massive outlet. And they are one of the few American companies that gets to do a lot of business in China because the state central party... Uh, in China decides who gets to come and go. And it appears as though in order to maintain that level of access, Bloomberg and his top executives have flown to Beijing uh, and elsewhere in the region, but Beijing in particular, on a regular basis over the last few years. And the only evidence of the meetings appears on China's propaganda uh, websites, which I've uh, gone through meticulously for the book. And we can only take their word for it because Bloomberg didn't respond to me when I reached out. Uh, But they said the content of the meeting was introducing China to America, introducing Chinese stories to the West, uh, cooperation between America and Chinese media. And then you see Bloomberg, one of the major funders of Democrat Party politics, goes on TV and starts talking about how Xi Jinping's not a dictator. Of course, he is. How Xi Jinping is doing a good job on the environment. He's the biggest polluter on the planet, and he's still making uh, coal-fired power plants. In all of these excuses, all of this uh, by Bloomberg, who's supposed to be a climate activist, you start putting two and two together. It's all a business move for a guy who has a, uh, it seems to have a bit of a Napoleon complex and is worth $50 billion.
1: Who is uh, Sleeping Giants or what is Sleeping Giants and NewsGuard? Most people are not aware of these things. Talk about what they are, the significance and how they've intersected with your work.
0: Yeah so these is they're they're part of this generation of self-appointed censors who are trying to police the internet and try to sanitize it from content that they would argue is either fake news or creating violence or spreading disinformation uh, but the pattern is more that they are doing it for people that are putting out content that uh, it does not fit The establishment narrative or the democrat narrative, and as is so often the case throughout the book, as I document, uh, their test cases are are, are Breitbart and Sleeping Giants. Was apparently their founders a guy named Matt Rivets, who's an ad executive, and a woman in tech, I believe, uh, named Nandini Jammy, who were these people who didn't go to Breitbart routinely until Donald Trump won, but when Trump won. And we were associated with Trump's rise. They started to check us out, and they found a few uh, opinion pieces that most of them written tongue-in-cheek, and clearly uh, the, the voices of specific authors. And they, were used, they used that to try to paint the entire website, which we produce 100 pieces of original content a day, as some sort of radical, extreme thing that must not have advertising. And so they went around with a AstroTurf group of people on Twitter asking advertisers not to to advertise on Breitbart. And what happened is that some of them went with it because they probably ideologically do disagree. Uh, Some of them went with it, we presume, because they were under some pressure and they don't like being under pressure. And uh, other times we think that it was a uh, people, people, the people stuck with us. So they did this for years and then they expanded to Tucker Carlson and others. Uh, But what ended up happening during this process is the sleeping giants reset the way companies thought about their online advertising. And I I go through this in detail in the book. I don't want to get too granular because it's there for anyone who wants to read it. Uh, But the way online advertising is done is generally it goes to a third party broker, typically Google or a huge outlet like that. And they match the reader with the content. They have an algorithm that thinks that if you're reading X, then you probably might buy Y product, which is mutually beneficial. So it's mutually beneficial for Breitbart because we're, uh, uh, we're, we then get, product uh, product placed that our reader might buy and it's beneficial for the company who's selling the product because their uh, product is appearing on in front of eyeballs that are likely to buy it. It's The system worked fine and no one was unhappy about it uh, th- for the most part until Sleeping Giant said, wait a minute, what if you don't want your company to appear on that content regardless of who's the reader? And when people started thinking about that, it started with because Breitbart was supposed to be so – evil and horrible and miserable, um, but then what ended up happening is, is the advertising businesses started extrapolate out and they started to think, well, maybe we don't want to be advertising content about the coronavirus or about Donald Trump or about war. And all of these topics were started to seem gratuitous for you to put advertising on these stories. And this totally devastated and decimated the advertising industry. Now, at Breitbart, we're lean and mean. We don't have a huge staff and we have a ton of traffic. So uh, uh, we did fine. Uh, we We survived the campaign. But what's interesting is the rest of the world, the rest of the news media, uh, sometimes did markedly worse than we did during this time, which is why even though traffic to websites during the Trump years, they were up so high, and yet ad revenue was down. And you can thank the sleeping giants. You can thank Matt Rivets and Nandini Jammy. So if you are a person who didn't get a raise or you you had your job cut during the advertising downturn of recent years... Um, I I would ask those two uh, if this was what they had in mind, and I'm sure it isn't, but it is an unbelievable consequence. I know that was a huge answer on Sleeping Giants. A, A news guard, very similar. What they do is they give a blanket score on a website, either your good guys or bad guys, your green check or red check. And they set the standards. We don't really know who they are, other than that they're associated with establishment media outlets, establishment political parties. And uh, if you're not really forthcoming with them and you do whatever they say, then they brand you red. And it's an absurd thing. Like if you, uh, with Breitbart, we syndicate the AP. So a Breitbart AP story, for example, will get a red block on it because Breitbart is not trustworthy. But the New York Times uh, syndicates the AP. If they put up the same exact story, they get a green shield indicating that it's, it's safe. It's safe to read this. Uh, it's totally bogus. It's funded by Microsoft, and it's just designed to shut out people who buck the status quo
1: you uh this these stories kind of call to mind the kind of whack-a-mole nature of of uh online activity uh would-be censorious yeah. uh behavior i mean uh, every day you look on on facebook one of the most popular pages maybe this is the, this is tweaked in some way that you have insight on but it's usually like dan bongino <laughs> right. uh you know breitbart uh, uh ben shapiro like it's it's just constantly that um you use a phrase, uh, especially in the latter half of the book of the Silicon Valley Masters of the Universe. Can they really be masters of the universe when it is so easy to route around what they are doing?
0: So I think that there's a facebook is a is a noteworthy is noteworthy uh, because they have allowed for some conservative content to do very well there. You know, the content though, that works on Facebook is not all of our content. a lot of the content that's most popular with our readers gets fact-checked instantly on Facebook, even if it's true. I mean, the, the best example uh, of recent, uh, the, uh, uh, as we're recording this, I know this will air a little later, and I don't recall exactly what Breitbart reported on this, but how many fact-checks were there about Wuhan lab theories uh, that were just fact-checked by, uh, by um, establishment-sanctioned fact-checkers? And then as it turns out, well, now they're rethinking that. And the things that Breitbart puts out that are true so often get fact-checked as false or misleading because we didn't supply enough context, whereas blatant falsehoods from CNN, the New York Times, et cetera, uh, thrive. So it's not, we're not treated equally on those platforms. Uh, we noticed a shift after the 2016 election when it comes to Facebook. Uh, Breitbart was the number one biggest outlet, I believe. It, it was very close with Breitbart, New York Times, and the Huffington Post in terms of influence ahead of 2016. And right at the beginning of, I think it was 2018, Facebook just switched their algorithm. They turned Turned a dial. Our traffic plummeted on Facebook, not to zero, but it went from we were in the top five to down to about 20 in terms of most popular publishers. And then uh, CNN went up during that time. And it is clearly there was a manipulation. We weren't banned per se, but our reach was diminished, which hurts our business. And again, for Breitbart, we can weather some of these storms because of our size. Uh, but a lot of our, our friends and colleagues in upstart conservative media, they, they just went kaput complete, completely because they had sunk so much in their business model being Facebook shares. Um, so while Breitbart does do do very well on Facebook, I do believe we would be doing much better if there weren't a lot of these, a, a governor put in place by people who are unelected, unaccountable in Silicon Valley, who never explain themselves or what they're doing. It's all very mysterious uh, what they do. But Twitter clearly censors conservative speech and conservative falsehoods more than, not even just left of center speech. I mean, how much uh, calls to violence from overseas leaders are allowed to stay on the page, whereas a normative conservative thought can get you thrown off of Twitter. And Google is the clearest example where, in May of last year, Breit- Breitbart's traffic on Joe Biden stories went literally to zero. Unless you put the word Breitbart in the Google search, you're not going to ever get a Joe Biden story from Breitbart. Even an exclusive story. If I went to Donald Trump during the campaign, got an exclusive quote about Joe Biden. It was not going to show up in Google searches unless you search for unless you put the word Breitbart in there. Clearly, that's manipulation, and that is a masters of the universe type behavior because they're controlling so much of the information we all consume each day. Whether or not it's a pure blanket boycott or censorship, that varies from outlet to outlet. But clearly, they're doing massive amounts of manipulation. Do you disagree, Matt, with that? That they're doing something?
1: Uh, They're absolutely doing uh, things uh, uh, right and left on a daily basis. And I think the suppression of the Hunter Biden story in particular uh, in October, November of last year and kicking the New York Post off of Twitter uh, really gratuitously for a week. Uh, And I say that as I don't really care overly much about the Hunter Biden story. We can disagree offline about that. Um, But uh, I, I don't want Twitter to be um, you know, kicking off politicians and and saying to a uh, long established newspaper, you can't write about this. That's, it is inherently ridiculous. The question becomes, and this is where I will now ask you the question, sir. Um, sure. But like, what is the remedy? You mentioned uh, that these are unelected people. Well, we don't want to elect our social media platforms. Uh, the uh, the phrase that you used at the end, and this is strong coming from a conservative, and it's different than what we would hear from conservatives thirty years ago. I'll read it to you. Uh, when conservatives take power next, their top priority should be restraining big tech, holding them accountable for their anti-conservative bias favoritism toward major corporations and monopolistic tendencies. Every available avenue to weaken these monopolies and oligopolies should be considered, unquote. Do you think that the, having the federal government uh, kind of weaponized to check the power of people based on their viewpoints is going to end well for free speech?
0: Uh, I don't know if it's if that's how I would boil it down uh, exactly. Uh, what I would look at now is the vast, vast, vast majority of free speech, which is uh, I know the letter of the law with the First Amendment is talking about the government, but the the reality is is that conservative speech is is not as valuable as liberal speech at this time, according to the people who control it the most, and and that is something that we need to deal with now. How to deal with it. Is, is more of a challenge and is something that's up for debate. But clearly, whatever we're doing now is not working. It's leading to clear manipulation on behalf of Democrat politics, which I go through in the book a number of times. And you cite a perfect example, which is the totally true Hunter Biden story, which was seen as was branded Russian disinfo and, and, and memory hold. So uh, it, it's the four conservatives where we are getting crushed not by the Democrats. We are getting crushed by people in Silicon Valley who are controlling the First Amendment at this time. And so either we are trusting them with our First Amendment or there's something we must that must be done about it. And this is the... Uh, And and this is one of the biggest challenges of our time, because if we do nothing, what's going to happen is you're going to see every year more conservative just getting removed memory hold from the Internet. And so then what are our options? And this is where I think we're going to have to use the states as test kitchens. And we're going to have to see what can survive legal challenges because not everything will. Uh, but there needs to be a lot that's on, on, on the table, and I don't wouldn't limit it to the government doing something like breaking up these companies, because I think they're big enough now and monopolistic enough where that should be a consideration. Uh, antitrust laws kind of seems ineffectual here, so that should be looked at, again, whether or not that needs some level of reform. Uh, reforms to Communications Decency Act, Section 230. Uh, are 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 big but I, you know i don't think that people fully understand how to do that properly so these are tough calls but i don't think that just leaving this one up to uh we're, we're just going to build our own twitter i mean look what happened with parlor they did build their own twitter and amazon kicked them off there's just too much infrastructure that would need to be built from by conservatives to compete that we're just going to be totally destroyed by the time that happens
1: Uh, You write uh, in Masters of Universe uh, uh, parlance here uh, that it is apparent to me that the suppression of conservative friendly stories and the elevation of hoax narratives that benefit Joe Biden were enough to swing the election on its own. Um, you, You all say, I believe the Masters of the Universe were the single biggest deciding factor in the 2020 election, unquote. How is that any less conspiratorial, let's say, than what MSNBC talked about for, you know, three years after twenty sixteen?
0: Sure. And I show it in the data and I show it with a survey the Media Research Center did where they laid out the uh, top narratives that were going against Joe Biden, which is uh, Hunter Biden's scandals and some of his business dealings, that Kamala Harris was the most radical leftist in the Senate, at least according to one major survey, uh, and that Joe Biden had been credibly accused of a sexual assault when he was in the Senate by a staffer. And this is something that is, um, remember, we were supposed to believe all women. And then also all of the good news that was coming out of Donald Trump's America. and Donald Trump's America, you were seeing really terrific jobs numbers. Uh, Peace was returned to the Middle East for the first time in my lifetime. And uh, the vaccine was on track, which was shocking. Everyone, uh, me included. And all of that stuff was, and a few others, and the Media Research Center highlighted this in a survey. And they concluded that 17% of people who voted for Joe Biden, had they been aware of all eight of the things they laid out, which again, I go through in the book, they would not have voted for Biden. It doesn't mean they would have voted for Trump, but it means they wouldn't have voted for for Biden. And I think the logic that the people who control our information are the people who are the ones who can decide the most votes and swing the most votes I don't think that's conspiratory at all. Conspiratorial at all. I, uh, conspiratorial, uh, conspiratorial at all. Uh, how else are people supposed to choose where they vote unless it is based off of what they're reading and what they're talking about with friends and family? I, I don't know what else would swing the vote uh, that much. Is it uh, TV ads? I, I don't. I don't know what the alternative would be.
1: Well, so uh, you know, as someone who went on MSNBC quite a lot in 2016, 17, 18, and 19, um, whenever someone would say the election was rigged. Um, or was in some way uh, uh, like manipulate, hacked, um, I would always point out, no, no one got in between a voter and the voting machine as far as we know. There might've been individual anomalies here and there, but using that that word is, is uh, tendentious. And as is the notion that, you know, $100,000 worth of Facebook ads, as you rightly point out in the book, uh, somehow is going to swing things. It's, it's positing individual consumers as being these manipulatable sheep, a robot sheep that you can press the right uh, button on a social media platform, and it's going to change. I think you quote a guy saying uh, uh, as many as 15 million votes. That's bananas. 15 million votes were not changed by social media were they do you really think that's a possibility
0: I, no i i don't i don't know if 15 million votes were changed from social media it's impossible to quantify that sort of thing but i do think that the the numbers were so narrow and i go through in the book, exactly how narrow the margins were in these swing states. I mean, it was tens of thousands of votes uh, overall, at most a couple of hundred thousand votes, swung the whole election. So it doesn't need to be 15, it doesn't need to be 15 million, doesn't need to be a fraction of that. Uh, it just needs to be enough people in those states: Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, just two or three of those states. In the election has a totally different outcome. And do I believe that had Silicon Valley been fair to Trump and the Republicans and people like Breitbart and treated us the same that CNN has uh, treated, that uh, there would have been Uh, Tens of thousands of more votes that went at least against Biden. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that would be the case. So it's again. So the 15 million number, I cite that as an example of a case that's being made by a scholarly guy who votes Democrat, the guy Robert Epstein you're quoting. He does vote Democrat. He voted for Biden. He wants Biden to win. Now, I I don't it's the it, it is a perspective that is not aired at all. And I don't think it's fair to dismiss it as conspiratorial. It is no more conspiratorial than the stuff we were getting on a consistent basis. It's impossible to back up. I get it. It's impossible to back up on a literal level, but it does make you consider the power of social media, which is not being done. We're just accepting social media as a given in our, in our life. And I do think people need to understand, and hopefully the book makes this case, that taking seriously the power they have over our politics is so immense, it's incalculable.
1: Uh, You have a long section in the back talking about the election and how we should think about whether, you know, the stop the steal, uh, you know, both the slogan as a concept, the legal challenges and your main case against the way that the election was conducted was against mail-in voting. I don't want to litigate everything here because we don't have enough time and sure. it's not, a, it's a bit of a distraction, but I just want to drill down one tiny point about the mail-in voting thing, right? So we have an unprecedented pandemic here. It's your contention that Democrats and the media really, really pushed for mail-in voting and that mail-in voting is more uh, manipulatable and it creates sort of like holes in the, in the chain of things. Um, And uh, it creates vulnerabilities where Democrats have more strength. Um, Just one narrow question on that is, um, and yet, if we expected there to be hijinks with that, would we not have seen Uh, Or would we have seen Donald Trump gain in cities, which he did everywhere. He gained the New York City where I'm talking to you right now. Uh, I think he gained in Philadelphia. Like he did better in big cities than he did in 2016. You would imagine that Democratic run, uh, you know, big machines would be if they had like an ability to put their thumb on the scales. That's exactly where it would happen.
0: Yeah, it's a I think Trump gained certainly from mail in voting, but he lost more than he gained because Biden was gaining more. And that's just like, for example, if people come in through the border illegally, um, some of them are going to if they were given the vote or their kids vote, some of them are going to vote Trump, but more of the new people are going to vote Democrats. So it's a net benefit for Democrats electorally. I think mail in voting is very similar. If you make it the easier to make it. So uh, to to vote by mail, the more people are going to vote by mail. And that will benefit both sides. But because it benefits Biden by a greater margin, a greater percentage are going to vote Biden. On net, it drastically favors Democrats. And I I think the stats bear that out. I mean, I don't think anyone thought that it would be conceivable that Joe Biden would get, you know, 15-20 million more votes than Barack Obama got. Of course that was due to mail-in voting which was loosened and made more of a institution because ostensibly because we need to stay safe from a pandemic. Well, most people still did or at least close to most people went to vote on election day and there was no super spreader event from that so it was all hokum designed to make it easier for democrat ballots to get cast and for community organizers to do their work to at a minimum get people who are otherwise not inclined to vote to punch their ticket for democrats
1: you have a subhead up near the top of the book uh called the charlottesville hoax which is a phrase i see a lot in conservative uh, media and in critiques of uh, mainstream media, uh, in in that section you lament how uh, quote the fake news narrative that uh, Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides uh, of that tragedy that happened in Charlottesville uh, that followed him around to the end of his presidency uh, unquote uh, the broader Trump quote that you do include in there. Um, he says you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Um, so how is the very fine people fake news? What he kind of said that there's very fine people on both sides. I, I, I've seen this a lot and I, and I literally don't understand why that is a hoax
0: sure so it's right there in the book it's the next page over uh it's a less than a minute after trump said very fine people he said not the neo-nazis i condemn them totally and that's the exact quote not the neo-Nazis. I condemn them totally. And that is, a, it's right there in the book. And less than a minute later, he says the neo-Nazis, he condemns them. And that was totally ignored because it was, you know, 61 seconds after he had said there were fine people on both sides. So the media can conveniently cut it off. Look, he said fine people on both sides, uh, end of story. But just a minute later, literally one minute later, he says, not the neo-Nazis. I don't know how much better he can do than to say not the neo-Nazis
1: right but like he did say there's very fine people on both sides it wasn't i mean maybe I'm, I'm just a literalist in, in uses of, of, uh, of quotes, but like I, and maybe I, I saw the condemnation of the, of the neo-Nazis myself and internalized it that yes, he condemned those people. Um, and then sure. he also said very fine people on both sides. I just don't see how that in itself is a hoax. So, you, so it's your contention that, that people like sort of deliberately chopped off, uh, that other context and pretended that it didn't exist.
0: Yeah, I think over time it morphed into he called neo-Nazis very fine people, which he did not. He said specifically, those are not the fine people. I think that, you know, there was originally, it was a big debate over statues and whether or not statues should come down. And there were some people wanted the statues down because they represent something that they don't like. And then some people like the statues and they think they represent something that's defensible and they were going to march. And then there were violent people on both sides. And obviously the 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 uh, a radical people with the were probably racist with the tiki torches. I'm not denying that. I'm not defending anything at Charlottesville at all. I'm just saying that there are these people who were there who were probably just protesting because they didn't want the statues taken down. And I don't know if I'd call them very fine people, but we don't we don't. They're not neo Nazis. All of them. Some of them were, and they were condemned. Some of them were not neo Nazis. They don't have to be condemned. And to act like every single person there was a neo Nazi is pretty laughable. I mean, it was treated like it was the greatest race hate crime in the history of the world. I mean, we've had so much worse in this country. We've had so many horrible racial hate crimes. This is one where I think that there was one person who died and it was a white woman. And we obsessed over this as a nation. We didn't need to. It wasn't nearly as bad as the media made it seem. And they tried to make it like Trump was at the center of it, which was just not t- not true in the slightest.
1: You say about some journalists, uh, people in the media, uh, their ultimate goal is to cancel America, at least in the traditional sense. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I the, the perfect example of this is 1619, which I get into in a lot of detail uh, in the book, and how really the origins of it were to reset America's history, collective memory, really about the way we think about our own country to reset our collective memory from we were founded in 1776 with these ideals, e pluribus unum, in God we trust, liberty, all these things, First Amendment, Second Amendment, the things that we love so much. And even, you know, for the most, most of it's universal, sometimes not the Second Amendment for for some people. Um, But it is one of these things where that was the founding doctrine, or so we were told, and we were being told our whole upbringing has been some sort of a giant hoax, and that really we were founded in 1619 uh, with the first slave colony, and it was specifically, specifically was how it was written in the original 1619 essay uh, to to preserve the institution of slavery. We were founded specifically because we wanted to have slavery, and that's what's in our DNA, which of course makes America a much more horrible place to its core, if that's true. Of course, a lot of professors, including mainstream um, African-American studies professors, refuted much of 1619, but I think that's the perfect example of it's not enough just to win a debate or to get Democrats and liberals elected. Uh, A lot of the people who are in the mainstream of American media at this time are making a very concerted effort to try to reset America's founding principles away from those uh, uh, God-fearing, liberty-loving ideals that I grew up on into that actually were just a racist place. And that's our core. And that's our essence.
1: Uh, Following up on that uh, in your conclusion, one of the things that you say is that we can no longer hide from the left. Time is of the essence The left cannot be appeased. They do not want compromise. They do not want to educate or reform. They want to absorb or destroy. Become one of them or they will come for you. It's only a matter of time. Sounds pretty dire.
0: Yeah, I think it's dire. And I think that, again, we've got a couple of weapons, figuratively speaking, to fight back. I disavow political violence. Uh, but it's a, so long as we free speech, we've got a chance. But this is one of the lessons that I learned from Andrew Reitbart. And I was Andrew Reitbart's first employee. And uh, Andrew was a fearless warrior. And he was someone who told me very early on, and I learned this through countless examples, that doing what the left wants is not going to win them over. The only ways to win them over is to be converted so that they can use you as some sort of a bludgeon against the rest of the right. Uh, And they really would like to see you crushed. And Breitbart again is a perfect example of this. Uh, We've constantly been called racist and all sorts of names. Well, Uh, My entertainment editor is a black man. My copy chief is a black woman. My world editor is a Latina woman. Uh, It's a, our, again, my top senior editor is an Orthodox Jew. We've incredible effortless diversity within the company. Is this ever applauded? No, of course not. Okay. So the the left was mad that we had uh, used to put up uh, more opinion pieces that were more inflammatory and designed to provoke uh, we don't do that as often now. So does the left write nice pieces about how Breitbart is is calmed down a little bit? No, of course not, because they're not really interested in us calming down. They want us to go away. That's the main thing, because we still have the same core political principles as we've had. Uh, we just articulate them in maybe a slightly different way. They're pretty much similar, uh, but it's never enough. It's, they don't. They'll never give you accolades for that. And that's the message I'm trying to send to people who think that uh, a healthy debate with the left, not liberals. Liberals are wonderful. Liberals are open-minded. I love talking to liberals, but it is people on the hard left, which I believe are running most of our newsrooms now. Uh, they're not interested in my perspective or your perspective for the most part. Uh, they're interested in, in in absorbing us and co-opting us.
1: Um, invite you to uh, see if there's any tension between two things that you wrote, I think on consecutive pages near the end. Uh, first is in order to defeat the corporate media, conservatives must interact with them only when it is strategically advantageous to do so. And then a little bit later, America has entered a dark moment where dialogue with certain people who hold certain viewpoints is verboten. This is a dangerous trend and one that must be resisted intensely. So which is it?
0: I know. I think it's both. I think that it's a you can engage in the dialogue on corporate media because they control so much of the of the platforms. That's why I'm a reluctant uh, user of social media. We're really good at it at Breitbart, uh, and personally, I don't like it, but I do use it because I- I'm not naive. I don't think single handedly I can just you know, uh, 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 change the America, the American people's perspective on this topic in one fell swoop. I would love a day when we're not as addicted to social media and social media isn't all about just, uh, uh, you know, a- angry leftism as it is on Twitter so often. Uh, but uh, until that day is here, my choices are either opt out and be totally irrelevant or opt in to a certain degree when I think is strategically advantageous. So while we're building our own stuff, I, I don't want to send a signal to people who are in the middle, independent liberals, who are genuinely curious about what we're thinking, that we're not up for a, a robust debate and, and a, even a cordial debate. It doesn't need to be an, a, a bellicose all the time. I do think, though, this element of the, of the left, which is clearly distinguished from liberals, uh, it, it, which has a wild totalitarian streak, is taking over more of our corporations. And I think that that is... I, I find it more consistent than you. I understand your point in general, uh, but it is a process. It's not something that can, it's not a light switch. And if it was a light switch, I would try to flip it, but that can't be done.
1: Where do we go in the next, in the waning two minutes of this conversation, uh, but also uh, uh, your sense of where we are in this kind of cultural division, culture war, if you want to call it that. Um, is it going to get more intense and more bloody before it gets more peaceful and different?
0: I don't think it'll get bloody. Um, I, I don't think that Americans in general are that committed at this moment to that. I, I don't want to see it get bloody, and I disavow violence. Again, I'll say that uh, over and over. Uh, but I do think that there I- there are uh, there is an element that is really fired up. But I think for the most part, people are kind of fat and happy and enjoying their creature comforts and their smartphones and their meal delivery services and their streaming. And uh, they're more content to just show up and vote every so often and uh, and then grouse on social media. And I think that's a shame. And I would love to see more civic engagement uh, even at a lower level. I even recommend at one point that you join, join, join your homeowners association or your school board. Um, but I, unfortunately, to answer your broader point, I think we got two choices. The pendulum needs to swing back, towards letting the best ideas win, uh, having a bigger forum of debate and ideas, not just calling everyone racist, or sexist, or xenophobe, or whatever, and you're canceled when you disagree. Uh, Or we're going to do this thing where we're very bifurcated, where there's going to be people are going to move to red states, or they're going to move to blue states. And that's what they're going to be. And eventually, companies will rise up, and then it'll become the equivalent of separate drinking fountains. I I think that would be horrible. And I don't really know what that looks like, because we're so interconnected economically. Uh, But it's got to be one or the other to me. It's either the pendulum swings back or this bifurcated nation.
1: In the last minute we have here, give uh, viewers uh, who don't share your politics a reason to buy your book and also to visit Breitbart.com.
0: Uh, thank you so much for that. The, the, I think the number one thing is that I try to immerse myself in one of the big advantages we have at Breitbart and why we've been so effective is that we read left-wing news. We read centrist news, we whatever centrist news there is. We read establishment uh, publications. We read anti-establishment. And we actually find a lot of common ground in a lot of areas because we don't, uh, we think of ourselves as, yes, we're right of center, but we also have a lot of libertarian writers, a lot of populist writers, and there's a lot of different perspectives that are there. And if you pick up this book, I think you'll at least get an entertaining uh, version of what me, the editor of Breitbart, is is thinking when I'm editing the page of Breitbart uh, a day-to-day. And I think that's, even if you dismiss every idea in there, I think it's enriching to get that perspective the same way I will read countless lefty publications this year and liberal publications this year.
1: The book is breaking the news, exposing the establishment's hidden deals and secret corruption. The author is Alex Marlowe. Thank you so much, Alex.
0: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. We
1: invite you to check out our Q and A podcast for intriguing hour-long conversations with people who are making things happen. A new episode premieres every Sunday night. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts.